Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how narrative, whether it's investigative journalism or a spy thriller, can combat corruption. Mm. We talked to a writer who has written both to great effect, and it was a fascinating conversation. We're so excited to share it with you. Yes. So... Brian Christie is the founder of the Special Investigations Unit at National Geographic and a National Geographic Society Rolex Explorer of the Year. His criminal investigations have been the subject of two award-winning National Geographic documentaries and have led to police raids on Vatican City, the defrocking of a pedophile monsignor, the arrest and imprisonment of the quote-unquote Pablo Escobar of wildlife trafficking, and the closing of China's ivory market, saving tens of thousands of elephants. A lifelong adventurer, he has worked as a mortician's apprentice, an international trade lawyer, a CPA, a NASCAR team consultant, a whitewater kayak instructor, and a television correspondent. His first novel, In the Company of Killers, was one of the New York Times Book Review's eight thrillers to read this summer, and a crime reads editor's choice. Brian is also the author of the nonfiction book, The Lizard King. Even his bio is fascinating. I know. <laughs> just God. wait till you hear the conversation. I know. Uh, just a little background about his debut novel. In the Company of Killers centers on Tom Clay, a celebrated investigative wildlife reporter, much like Brian himself. But unlike Brian, at least as far as we know, Tom Clay leads a double life as a CIA spy. When Clay's closest friend is murdered in Kenya, Tom travels the globe to hunt down the killer. It's a fantastic thriller, but it's also a close-up look at how wildlife exploitation, in this case elephant poaching, connects to much bigger and more extensive international crime and the roles that private media and private military contractors play in all of this. Doesn't that sound like a book you want to read? Yes, indeed it does, especially knowing that so much of it is grounded in the author's actual experience. Like Tom Clay, for many years, Brian's job was to go after some of the world's worst wildlife traffickers and criminals. We started by asking Brian what kept him motivated doing such difficult, often heartbreaking work. And he told us a story involving elephants. I've never encountered a species that is so extraordinary by every measure. It's the size and appearance, the intelligence, the sensitivity, the memory that they're so famous for. As you know, my job was as a, a criminal investigator, and I was head of special investigations for National Geographic. And 
I did a lot of my work from the page, researching in files. And finally, when I got to Africa, there was one evening when we had been out for quite some time and I hadn't seen any elephants and I was disappointed. This is early on in my career. And then I looked to the right from our vehicle and I realized as I looked into the gray that in fact, there were maybe a hundred elephants lined up along the road. Mm. There are moments like that, that you draw strength from as you're looking at some really horrible people and some really tragic things that they do to animals. And that was a moment that I keep with me still. And it motivates me to tell stories that have a lot of opposition from the people I've interacted with who are often the criminals. Yeah. It feels reading the book, like a lot of the details and moments and characters come from your life. How much of the book is based on real people and events that you experience firsthand? And can you give us an example or two? Uh, you know, it's a tricky, I want the book to be authentic. I want it to be realistic. I want people who read it to know what it's like to some degree to work for National Geographic. I want them to know what it's like to be in the field with wildlife and to be face to face or in pursuit of really bad people. Um, I put in the book, uh, investigative techniques that I use that aren't always approved by management, but that I have been very effective with and I wanted to give aspiring or other journalists a toolkit. And some of the characters are derived to some degree from my experiences. Ross Botha, who is one of the villains of the book, uh, is a terrible guy. He's moving diamonds out of Sierra Leone. He's interacting with Charles Taylor, moving arms. He's been implicated in sex trafficking and uh, poaching. That guy is inspired by someone named Hugo Ross, uh, who's a South African, who's done all of those things mm -hmm. and told me he had. I spent a lot of time with Hugo, who's just been sentenced to 29 years in prison for, by Hugo Ross's standards, very minor mm. crimes involving weapons and um, fraud. Mm. And what's an example of an investigative technique that would not be approved by management? So I wasn't trained as a journalist. I was not aware that the profession of journalism frowns on anything undercover. And I didn't know that for quite some time. And I was, I do less undercover than people think I do. Uh, a lot of what I did and do, um, I find out later is, is not approved. Um, <laughs> yeah. Better to ask for forgiveness and permission. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on the editor and editors change even mid assignment. So you can have somebody who says, let's go for it. Or in my case, I was on one assignment working for both television and the magazine. And I came up with a very intricate undercover operation. I was going to dress up as a doctor at a time when Ebola was just making the rounds in terms of the, in the press. And I was going to pose as a WHO doctor doing a survey of those who travel between West Africa and Vietnam. And I had the get up and I had the questions and I had, uh, I had the target. The target was a guy I knew was trafficking between the two countries, but I couldn't figure out what, when and 
where his movements were. He was on the Interpol red list, wanted around the world, and no one had gotten him, but I knew where he was. And this was all with the approval of TV management. But when a little voice in my head said, you know, this might not be ethical journalistically. And I called the magazine the night before I was supposed to do this. And the magazine editor correctly uh, just blew up at me. (laughs) And then I was between two, because I was in the country with the television team, but I had most of my responsibility and most of my internal commitment was to the magazine and to journalistic principles. So I got in a lot of trouble from both sides. (laughs) Neither side talked to each other. They both said it was my fault. I ruined the television operation and I potentially brought the magazine into disrepute. So, um, That's that's a good example. example. Yeah, that's a great example and a good story. So at least you got a good story from it. Yeah, I've never told that story before. Yeah. Um, Do you ever consider writing a memoir? I did a draft of one a bit ago. I'd rather write novels. You know, memoirs aren't very memorable, despite the name, Mm. but good fiction can be. And I'm, I'm taken by John Le Carre, who... I'm inspired and respect the degree to which he mined his experience and the relationships he had after he left MI6 to to continue to write fiction because fiction tells the bigger story and mm-hmm. that's and, and gets the bigger truths and that's where I want to spend my time. It's harder, but that's where I want to spend my time. Yeah, you've covered many wildlife-related topics that could lend themselves to a suspense novel, rhino poaching and the illegal reptile trade, just to name two. Why did you choose elephants for your first novel? The first scene of the book is a poaching operation. But to me, the book has nothing to do with elephant poaching other than that first setup. Mm -hmm. I used that as a jumping off point. For me, what the major criminal forces are far larger. They are the privatization of the media and what can happen when that, and it's a very small leap, when large for-profit organizations with, in this case, right-wing political agendas team up with companies that are sort of Blackwater-esque. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of combinations of corporations out there that overlap in ways people aren't aware. I wanted to get at that in this story, even though it opens up with elephant poaching. And what happens to Clay is what happened to me. We both start our careers looking at wildlife exploitation and wildlife trafficking and realize it's a window on much bigger levels of criminality that I couldn't fit into a magazine page. And Clay makes the choice to work for the CIA to go after some of that. And I make the choice to quit and tell the story through the novel. Mm -hmm. You did an interview with Trevor Noah in 2016 where you talked about the connection between wildlife crime and terrorism. Can you just say a little bit more about these kinds of connections? My first foray was I'd heard rumors that Joseph Coney, the terrorist head of the Lord's Resistance Army, the child soldier operation in Central Africa, was using ivory to fund himself. So he was killing elephants to to pay for medicine and arms. And he was trading with Omar al-Bashir, then the president of Sudan, was what I had heard. And so I put together an operation. I couldn't bring a team into Darfur. So 
we came up with what we thought was a, a useful surrogate, which was to plant a GPS tracker inside fake ivory that I had made and get that into the black market and see if it, in fact, went the route Coney's defectors were telling me that it went. I read Brian's piece for National Geographic about Joseph Coney and the fake trusts. I had to know if they went the route Brian's sources told him they would. First of all, everybody should read this article. We'll link to it in our show notes. It is harrowing. There's so much more to it than Brian summarized for us, including Brian spending a night in jail in Tanzania, which was not as bad as you might imagine, and then how ivory is used as currency, which is even worse and more complicated than you would imagine. Mm. And second of all, the fake tusks did follow the route that Brian had been told they would. My heart just breaks when I think back to those 100 elephants Brian saw through the mist lined up along the road. And then I think of the elephants being slaughtered for their ivory. It's it's a tragedy that's hard to even wrap my head around. It's just yeah. so devastating. The work Brian has done as an investigative journalist is so valuable, and so many of us wouldn't have the courage to do it. I don't think I would, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to Brian about it. You know, there was only one other time I felt the way I did while we were interviewing Brian, and Oddly enough, that was when I was doing research for my first book, Escape Under the Forever Sky. I needed to know about lions. And so I reached out to a lion expert. It turns out when you're a children's book author, if you reach out to experts, they will always say yes. They will always talk to you. It's a perk (laughs) of the job. But I kid you not, this guy's name was and is Luke Hunter. And he was Australian. And he was basically Indiana Jones and Crocodile Dundee all at the same time. So I said to him, look, I'm writing this book. And I'm thinking about this 13-year-old girl and she gets caught out in the bush and she has to spend a night out there. But is that even realistic that she would survive a night alone in the wild? And I wish I could do his Australian accent, but I can't. So I won't try. But Luke Hunter said to me, oh, yeah, she'll be fine. Just have her sleep in a tree. That's what we all do when we get stuck out in the bush too late. And (laughs) I thought to myself, I'm talking to somebody who sleeps in trees because he's out in the bush too late and he knows what it's like to touch lions. Mm. And I had that same feeling with Brian. I thought, I'm talking to a guy who knew the whereabouts of an Interpol target when Interpol couldn't find him. Yeah, it's remarkable. I can't fully appreciate it, though, because I'm stuck thinking that the scariest thing that the main character of my first book did was start third grade, which yeah. <laughs> did not require a lot of or any you know exciting research. No, but it can be scary to start third grade. Let's be honest. Yes. Um, anyway, Brian's work shows the impact that both fiction and nonfiction can have. We asked him how he got his start in journalism, and here is what he said. So you had big success very early in your journalism career. Your very first investigative piece was explosive. You exposed mega fraud in the rare coin world, and your reporting led to a Supreme Court case. What was it like to hit it big so fast and so young? Did you have a moment of like, what do I do from here? Uh, no. Oh. Uh, so... <laughs> So I had quit law. I was 32 and quit my law firm and thought, okay, I, I'll write a novel and kind of John Grisham style because those were very popular. I was an ex-lawyer and I thought, how hard can it be? 
And it turns out it's really, really hard to write <laughs> a book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I really was shocked because I had really good experience as a kid. I won the school writing awards every year or two and for poetry and short stories and things. And, and it turns out um, being able to put together a good sentence has nothing to do with or little to do with putting together a good novel. So I quit and I, I had um, years of floundering. I went out to the Iowa Writers Workshop for the summer. And while I was there, my uncle, who was an FBI undercover agent, and had been my idol as a kid, called me and said, hey, I hear you're committed to writing. I had my dog and a futon at that point. Mm. And I said, yeah, I'm committed. <laughs> uh, I sold my house and my car and everything. He said, well, why don't I tell you what happened to me to end my career? And maybe you can turn that into a book. And so long story short, we spent time together and he was in a very troubled place at that time and I didn't know it. And over the next several months we talked and I learned what happened to him. He began teaching me investigative techniques. He was undercover in Philadelphia for years on Jewelers Row on Sansom Street there. I said, I want to go back and explore that world. And he, he said, it was like a, you know, telling a Vietnam vet, we want to go back to, mm. to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Eventually he relented and said, okay, I'll give you some advice and put in touch with some people. And by complete coincidence, I had a friend whose grandfather had been one of my uncle's targets and I didn't know it. And by coincidence, we were put together. He was a wonderful older man and he took me under his wing and taught me all kinds of things about the other side of the, uh, the coin what the underworld was like. He didn't think of it as the underworld. He thought of it as the life he grew up in. But he called me one day and said, you want a story? You want to make it as a writer? You look up that coin they got on TV. Sotheby's was selling the world's most valuable coin. And I started looking into it and, and used connections that both of these guys had. Sotheby's was saying it's the only one in the world. And it turned out it wasn't. I found one within a couple of days of looking for it. I found, um, probability of more than one. Uh, that was my first magazine article, my first break. It led to uh, a lot of things. And I thought, man, my phone is going to be ringing. And uh, I didn't get a call. Not a, uh, Nothing happened. So that's a long answer to your, wow. to your question. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I would have yeah. thought some, <laughs> some book editor somewhere would have called you up and said, you got to write this, you got to make a book about this. Nope. An editor at National Geographic read that story and said, I want to make you my Hunter S. Thompson. I want you to be our guy going in the field with it. How's that sound to you? And I said, that sounds great. And she said, well, we're going to change the way we start doing stories here. And I want you to be the, and she started acting on that and letting people go and telling people that this guy who's never written for them was going to be the new face. And then she got fired. And so my first steps with National Geographic couldn't have been worse because I was the guy that this person was bringing in and everyone hated her because she was firing people 
and telling them they weren't doing it the right way. And, and then I, I was the face of that. So that was one early, uh, that was the result of that, of that <laughs> famous coin story. You had nobody to eat Thanks lunch for with. bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So that, that one moment failed, but then about a year later, I got a call and the editor said, a different editor said, we, we have a story about Asia's wildlife trade that we've had in the works for a while. And the writer has been unable to deliver. If we gave that assignment to you, what would you do? Mm. And I had been researching a book on the reptile trade. That book started because I did the coin story. I got no response. And I said to my uncle, the FBI agent, what do I do next? He said, well, what do you care about? I said, I don't know. I was a lawyer. I don't, I don't care about anything. Uh, he said, remember when you were a kid and you wrote that story about your pet python? We, we have that on the wall here. Why don't you look into that? So that was the impetus for me to look into reptiles. And so I was working on a book about the illegal reptile trade. So my answer to the Nat Geo editor was, if you are interested in Asia's wildlife trade, I would go after... Anson Wong, who was a kingpin operating in Malaysia. He's the guy behind everything. For all the reptiles, he's moving snow leopards, he's moving panda bear skins, he's moving elephants. And they said, we don't do crime here. I said, of course you do. Every endangered species story you do is a crime story. It's just, you only tell the victim's perspective. Let's go after the villains. So they said, well, we'll give it a shot what are we going to photograph? And I said, well, let's approach it like an umbrella. I'll take the shaft of the umbrella. That'll be my narrative. It'll be very focused on this guy. And let's let the photographer photograph all the different species that are exploited by this guy directly or other traffickers. And that's what we did. I titled the story, the Kingpin, and I fought for that title because I wanted to put a flag in the idea that we were changing how we went after stories. That was the beginning and then eventually we brought in funding and institutional support to create a special investigations unit to go after these sorts of stories. Now, like Tom Clay, your work has allowed you to expose injustices and atrocities that have led to major court cases and new legislation. And so I feel like you are the perfect person to ask this question, which is what makes a difference in other words, what factors need to align to actually move the needle on the kinds of issues you've covered? If I did a story, I included all the elements that I could identify that were needed to affect change. I told you who the criminal was, who's the bad guy, Anson. What is he moving? I told you the species that he was trafficking. He couldn't be operating without a government official enabling him. I identified that official and interviewed them and quoted her saying, he's my great friend. I included the laws that he was violating and how he was doing it. For example, he had paid off wallet department officials. He would smuggle in rare animals. Then he would arrange for the wildlife cops to arrest the smugglers. They would seize the wildlife from his smugglers put them in jail and give the animals to his rescue center 
where he was then allowed under the law to rehabilitate them and sell them, which was his plan from the very beginning. And then he would bribe the way out for the traffickers that had been arrested. Mm -hmm. So I included that. And I included internationally what treaties were failing to stop these guys. When you include all the elements of a basically a criminal prosecution in court, including government corruption, and you do it on a platform as big as National Geographic, you are going to get change. There's no way in a country like Malaysia having a government official's name outed and the relationship, et cetera, it's not going to affect change. And, so, and they did. They, the anti-corruption agency raided that official's office. Members of parliament took the story onto the floor and changed the laws. And with Ivory, I found a connection to the Vatican and exposed the found a pedophile Monsignor who had gotten away with what he did to kids in Los Angeles, fled home to the Philippines, was given a bigger church and a compound of boys. And he was an ivory collector. And I said, you know what? I can save some of these kids instead of talking about China trafficking ivory is the story everybody's telling. I'm going after this Monsignor and I'm going to expose what he's doing. And I'm going to bring up the case that he got away with in the LA archdiocese. He got, defrocked as a result of the story by the Vatican. I also went to the Vatican and found ivory for sale in the shops in Vatican City. This is a case of where I was a bit undercover as a buyer. The sellers at the Vatican's ivory shops offered to smuggle it to the United States for me. And I included all that in the story and the Vatican City got raided by Italian police. Wow. That's how you tell a story recognizing the political levers available to you by exposing, you know, until Trump, exposing corruption and inappropriate behavior could make a difference. You know, his counter to that is to undermine the media with cries of fake media, which is another reason why I wanted this book to be about a journalist, a heroic journalist, because journalism to me is a heroic calling. Sharing these stories, learning about them, and then telling the story and sharing it is the first step to political movement. In the case of Malaysia, it was people writing to the newspapers, same in the Philippines and same in a lot of places where we exposed corruption. Hillary Clinton was sharing some of the story. I mean, people high and low in terms of how big a microphone they have, sharing the stories makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like groundswell of public opinion still has the power to force change. Awareness may not be enough anymore, but awareness that triggers that kind of public outcry, I think still can make a difference. Yeah. So you have said that too often wildlife crime stories are little more than ecotourism pieces with sad endings. What do you mean by that? I mean, most of the time reporters have not spent any time researching or investigating firsthand a wildlife crime story the way they would be required to do a organized crime story, mafia story, a drug story. A man is caught at LAX with with parrot eggs in a belt under his shirt. So somebody reads that and says, oh, okay, let's do a story on that. So the writer who has little or no experience jumps on a plane, goes to Brazil, and tells you all about 
as if uh, they're a travel writer and then throws in details about parrots there. Doesn't do any of the hard work to really uncover the criminal network. Doesn't treat it as a crime story. They treat it as travel stories. And that's historically been how wildlife crime stories are treated. And, and it's because wildlife has never been seen as a legitimate victim and people just don't do the hard work. Yeah. And what is the damage that's done by those pieces? Well, the first damage done is that it's a reality of the media that they're only going to give a certain amount of space to any topic. If that space is occupied by what amounts to a sad travel piece, you're not going to get another elephant story for years. So you've lost that opportunity to reach an audience with this kind of story that has the elements in it that could affect change. And the other is it just perpetuates the idea that wildlife is just isn't important. It's amazing that we're in a pandemic. Millions of people are dying. That pandemic is linked at some level to wild animals, at least as far as we know to this point. Yeah. It's linked enough that we ought to be talking about our relationship to wild spaces and what it, the spillover effects of taking a forest down and penetrating into more and more wild spaces. But we are not. Yeah. It's extraordinary to me. Yeah. Yeah, it is remarkable. So between your work as a mortician's apprentice, which is what you did when you were young, working for your family's funeral home, and your work investigating wildlife crime, you've come into close contact with death more frequently than most of us, I have to imagine. How would you describe your view of death, and how has that view shaped your work? Uh, my protagonist, Tom Clay, and I both grew up in a funeral home family, multi-generation. And I, at some point, developed this notion of a light switch, that death is a light switch, that light is the unexpected part of life. The absence of light is the steady state. So when someone dies or a pet dies, or I worked very hard to create a mindset where that switch is off and we're back to darkness. And that is the way it was. Hmm. And uh, that has helped me a great deal and it's hurt me a great deal. Because once that switch throws, you can't get back in. Yeah. It's not a healthy way to go through life. You know, you grow up in a funeral home. You don't know how the rest of the world... I can't remember the first dead body I saw. I can remember putting socks on the feet of dead people as a child. Mm -hmm. And seeing, you know, your school teacher, or your babysitter, or, you know, the principal who you were afraid of. And all kinds of experiences that you think... I'm not that different than the baker's child or the optician's child, but they've seen bread being made and eyeglasses being made. And and, uh, and then you go to college and you find out, no, actually, you know, that was my experience. Yes. Because there were things in my life I took, I assumed were true of everyone. And then I went to college and realized, oh no, these things are true of no one. You know, it's really just me. That's a big awakening. 
I feel the need to really think about the fact that Brian, as a young boy, would put socks on the feet of dead people he knew, like his school teacher or babysitter or the principal he was afraid of. And as he says, you know, this aspect of his childhood affected his view of death and living. It must have affected his view of danger and helped shape the kind of journalist and writer that he became. Obviously, there's a far more complicated dynamic in play than I can just sit here and imagine. But I really do admire, you know, his willingness to take risks in the service of such important topics. Oh, I do too. And I want to share the good news that Brian is already working on the next Tom Clay novel. Plus, he says he's got a couple of other projects in mind too. So we have a lot more of his work to look forward to. I'm so glad about that. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Christie and online at briancristie.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.